Father, as we come to this special time of our worship service where you speak to your church through the Word of God, we ask that it would be a time that you would revive your people according to your Word. Teach us your statutes. Cause us to understand the way of your precepts so that we might meditate on your wonders. We recognize many come from difficult circumstances and come to worship you with hindrances of of grief and uh, cares and concerns that we're compelled to cast upon Christ. We ask you through your word to uh, strengthen us, that you would use it to remove the false way from us and graciously grant us your law. Cause us to choose the faithful way as you place your ordinances before us. Cause us to cling to your testimonies that we might not be shamed. Cause us to run the way of your commandments knowing that you want to enlarge our hearts. We thank you for this time. Ask that your, your spirit would Speak these truths to our hearts, cause us to comprehend, give us a heart towards obedience and what it looks like in lives of grateful service. We offer it to you in the name of Christ, the name which is above every name. Amen. Several years ago, the Times reported the story of an elderly man and wife who were found dead in their apartment Autopsies revealed that both had died of severe malnutrition, although investigators found a total of $40,000 stored in paper bags in their closet. For many years, Hetty Green was called America's greatest miser. When she died in 1916, she left an estate valued at $100 million dollars. An especially vast fortune for that day. I think a vast fortune for our day, too. But she was uh, so miserly that she ate cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. When her son had a severe leg injury, she took so long trying to find a free clinic to treat him that his leg had to be amputated because of the advanced infection. It's been said that she hastened her own death by bringing on a fit of apoplexy while arguing the merits of skim milk because it was cheaper than whole milk. I think you understand the illustrations I'm bringing to our attention this morning on being misers, stingy, because I think that that is the anti-Ephesians, what Paul has written to us about the lavishness of God's love to his people for his own namesake. The book of Ephesians, written to Christians who might be prone to treat their spiritual resources like the older, the elderly miserly couple or Hetty Green, whose name lives on in infamy as a miser. Ephesians has been dubbed by some as the Christian's checkbook or the treasure house of the Bible. And this incredible letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from prison tells us of our great riches, our inheritance, and the fullness of Jesus Christ 
in his church if you know him. And so I figured we need to focus on that aspect as we come to the sacred desk as God speaks to his church through his word this morning. The Lord's heavenly resources are more than adequate to cover all of our past debts, all of our present liabilities, and all of our future needs, and still not reduce the heavenly assets. Isn't that incredible when you think about God, that he has never, when he exerts his power, he is never weakened by it, and when he lavishes his grace upon his people, uh, the storehouse is never minimized. Paul's going to speak to us in chapter 1, verse 7, of the riches of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 8, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, the riches of his glory. So as we spend a little, a few moments together this morning, readying our thoughts to sit at the apostles' feet, for our introduction to the book, let me encourage you to hang your thoughts on three words. Invitation, introduction, and exhortation. Maybe you jot these down in the notes section of your bulletin. We want to invite you, first of all, into a consecutive verse-by-verse exposition of this sublime book. The This is life-transforming. It's crucial. This is the most important book we could ever study. I think that whatever book we're studying the Bible is the most important book of the moment because that's what we're studying. And so for today, Ephesians is the most precious book uh, as we spend time in it. Uh, it's, It's crucial for all that we believe and how we behave this, that's the nature of the living and active word. It's so uh, treasured by us. And so I invite you to this uh, study. We also need to introduce it by setting the big picture in our minds, including an outline and who wrote it and who did he write to and why did he write it. And we'll conclude with a penetrating exhortation which exposes Paul's heart cry prayer for the saints there at Ephesus. So let's start off with an invitation to this glorious book. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor of exposition, called Ephesians the sublimest and most majestic expression of the gospel. If Romans is the most complete statement of Paul's theology, this shorter letter is his most eloquent description of it. It's considered by many people to be the greatest of Paul's writings. Farrar, for instance, called it the most sublime, most profound, most advanced, and final utterance of St. Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. Ephesians is said to be John Calvin's favorite, and it must have been John Knox's because the Scottish reformer would have Uh, on his deathbed, frequently have Calvin's sermons of Ephesians read to him. If you spend any time reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I forget which of my students at home are, it's on their book reading list for this year, but uh, when you spend time in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan received much of, of his inspiration, lower eye, his inspiration for writing the book, for his extended allegory in this epistle of Ephesians. William Barclay 
called it the Queen of the Epistles. And the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge termed it the divinest composition of man. If you think of some of the the other theologians uh, to uh, affect seminaries, the uh, former president of Princeton, John McKay, who was converted at 14 years old in reading Ephesians, called it the greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all Paul's writings. Of a little more contemporary weight, how about James Montgomery Boyce, whom God greatly used as pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was president, co-founder of Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. You could hear him on the Bible study hour for over 30 years. He went home to be with the Lord 15 years ago uh, uh, in the year 2000. His Ephesians commentary was republished 10 years after its initial publishing to which he said it was, it was great timing for this 10th uh, year edition to come out. And what he, he said, since the letter is a miniature doctrine of the church, a course in ecclesiology, and there's seldom been greater need for a sound doctrine of the church than today. And that was 15 years ago. How much more important is a study of ecclesiology in our day? There's mass confusion regarding the church in our day, especially among evangelicals. And the problem's not one of terminology. For many of you, uh, you're familiar with Paul's metaphors. Uh, The the church is the building body and bride of Christ. Uh, He speaks of a temple not made with hands. Uh, You you understand fellowship and, and, and such other terms. But more particularly, as we probe the doctrine of the church, how does or how did it come into being? Is, it, is its formation something that we do or God? How does it function? Are we free to organize it any way that we want? How about especially, what is the church for anyways? Does it exist just to reach others with the gospel? Is it to make us happy? Is there a greater plan in place than the plan of this this mystery that angels look into that he'll talk about in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10? Think about just the practical relevance of a study of the church in our day. The church, which is very man-centered. Thinking that the church is to be created and managed by mortal man for our needs. The, basically, the consumerism mentality that infects the church rather than created by God and for His express glory. As we'll begin unfolding next week, we see the place that it all begins, the work of the triune God, all to the praise of His glorious grace. So I'd invite you to sit through and engage yourself in the study of Paul's good biblical ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church that begins with God and His work and ends with His glory. He it is who calls us to faith. He Himself who regenerates. And ultimately, Him who glorifies. From this lens, this God would focus We'll explore how the church is to function and how we as Christians, as saints, 
are to live and how to fight in this spiritual war. Paul presents us basic doctrines of Christianity in in a way that's comprehensive, it's clear, it's practical, and it's winsome. What an invitation. Number two, how about a little introduction to this special letter? Let me remind you of a big picture outline of the book to, to put in your mind if it's not already there. Many of you have probably heard, like in other of Paul's epistles, he, he'll give doctrine and then duty. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, much great doctrine, the believer's blessing in Christ. In chapters 4 through 6, duty, the believer's behavior, as he moves from blessing to behavior. Chapters 1 through 3, we see the call of the church. Chapters 4 through 6, the conduct of the church and how it fleshes out in everyday life in shoe leather. I think even the grammar and the syntax bears this out as we see no imperatives in chapters 1 through 3 because it's focusing on divine gifts to be received, identity. And then we'll have 35 directives in chapters 4 through 6. The indicatives of what God has done in us through Christ, placing us in Christ, bring with them imperatival duties. The believer's responsibility to conduct himself according to his calling. And so you'll constantly see, the uh, as we've talked in Bible studies, small groups around here, about the indicative imperative connection. Moving from our position in Christ to our practice in Christ. What's the point? The point is that doctrine has its practice. Theology must carry itself over into action. Some have said uh, chapters 4 through 6 resemble kind of an orthopedic clinic where the Christian learns a spiritual walk rooted in his spiritual wealth. So it's not cart before the horse here. We've got to follow it chronologically from chapter 1 through chapter 6. John Stott said the whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty, both Christian faith and Christian life, what God has done through Christ and what we must do in consequence. So having introduced you just uh, to a brief 30,000-foot view of Ephesians, allow me to introduce the people, both the writer and uh, the readers. Notice with me the first half of verse 1. It, uh, it, it's, you know, though history's got its place and uh, uh, we'll mention some of that, we want to see what, uh, what Paul's got to tell us. Notice how he identifies himself. So it's not left to speculation or uh, you know, sanctified speculation or your own imagination. He identifies himself as Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Stop right there. The writer, notice, is the apostle Paul. You can't disregard or or treat it like any other letter, any other book on your bookshelf. Uh, To receive something from an apostle is uh, is to get inspired scripture, something that not only you read, but what reads you and exegetes your own life and how our lives need to come in conformity with it. 
This is God's revelation of His person and plan. It is from God, therefore it is true. It speaks with authority to the church. Think about how Paul got into this apostleship. God stopped Saul of Tarsus dead in his tracks on the Damascus Road. And by his will, he called Saul to faith. And the foremost persecutor of the church, did, he, did God not just call to faith, but to the particular service of apostleship to pen his revelation as the Holy Spirit would move him along. Insert here in your thinking, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, how that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul saw his apostleship as part of God's master plan. As Dr. Luke writes about this in Acts 9.15, Paul is referred to as a chosen vessel. The Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. His ministry was not the product of his own choosing, but God's doing from beginning to end. The early church maintained Pauline authorship, though critics have assaulted it, surmising that, it, well, it's not as personal as some of his other letters, and uh, there's too much new vocabulary. Yet it was the first epistle called Scripture by the church fathers. Besides, what is more likely that an imitator of Paul in the first century composed a writing 90 to 95% in accordance with Paul's style, or that Paul himself wrote the letter diverging 5 to 10% from his usual style. I think I'd go with the latter. Ephesians is one of his prison epistles written alongside Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. That is a grouping of New Testament epistles that are known as the, the prison epistles. He mentions his imprisonment in chapter 3, verse 1. Notice, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in the next chapter, the same verse, 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And numerous other places... Uh, he refers to this imprisonment. Tradition details the date to be during Paul's first Roman imprisonment in the early 60s, possibly between 61 and 63. But back up just a little bit in your thinking. At the end of his second missionary journey, Paul had visited Ephesus where he left Priscilla and Aquila. We are told that in the history book of Acts, if you want to turn back there with me for just a second, in Acts chapter 18, Paul, uh, Luke fills in the historical account of when, this all, uh, when Paul's feet touched down here. Acts 18, notice with me uh, verse 23. Excuse me, verse 18. Acts 18, 18. We're told Paul, having remained many days longer, if, we, if we'd gone up to the previous con, uh, context, you see that he was in Corinth, and then he came here to Ephesus, but didn't, uh, uh, took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila in Centra. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow, 
They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And so he set sail from Ephesus. So he was there briefly after his time in Corinth during his uh, second missionary journey. He would go there again if we were to continue reading in Acts 18, which we won't, uh, right into chapter 20. You remember Paul's final farewell to the Ephesian elders, and so he spent extended time there in his third missionary journey. Ephesus was a, a, a city that is uh, the longest ministry recorded in the book of Acts. In later years, Timothy and John would have extended ministries here. But what about the people? What about the readers? Let's, let's transition our thinking from writer to readers. If we continue reading there in Ephesians 1, 1, the second half of the verse, we're told that this is to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In many uh, uh, Ephesus was a strategic city. Uh, it was a commercial city of Asia Minor. If you learn anything about that day and the area, there was heavy silting that, that created the need for a special canal to be maintained for, so that ships could get into the harbor without bottoming out. Uh, it was also a religious center. You'll note that uh, the Temple of Diana which is her Roman name, or Artemis, the Greek name, was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It, you know, the, the temple to Artemis slash Diana, depending on which name you want to go by, we're, we're told that uh, that temple was built of shining marble that stood outside the walls. The temple facing the east, was erected on a platform about 425 feet by 240 feet and was reached by a flight of 14 steps. The temple measured 343 feet by 164 feet and had more than 100 columns, about 60 feet high, 36 of which were beautifully carved. So you, you, you imagine the enormity of this structure this, this temple to uh, a, a false deity. In the inner shrine was the image of the goddess claimed to have fallen from heaven. An inscription dated around AD 160 states, the goddess Artemis rules our city. That was their identity in the city of Ephesus. The cult of Artemis was clearly most prominent in the days of Paul and the early church. Behind the sacred shrine was a treasury. It served as the Bank of Asia. Ephesia, all, uh, Ephesia that's the right word. Yeah. Uh, Ephesus also boasted of the largest uh, Greek theater in Asia Minor. It measured 145 meters wide and 30 meters high. Due to its monstrosity, it boasted a seating capacity of 24,000 people. It's huge. And as you think about it, not just being a commercial city, but a, a religious center, it's known for its practice of magic, even referenced by Luke in Acts chapter 19. It was preeminently a city of astrology, sorcery, incantations, amulets, exorcisms, and every form 
of magical imposture. So this was a, a sizable place for the gospel to penetrate. It, the city swelled anywhere from 200 to 250,000 people, where it's a commercial city, a, a, a religious center. It was uh, the first and greatest metropolis of Asia ranked only behind Rome. And since it was such a commercial hub, it was essential that uh, Paul equip the body there to reach their world. Thus the emphasis in writing to the, the Ephesians, these readers. But you know, that's just a little... Uh, historical background so that you can imagine the uproar Paul created on the magic and image industry. Everywhere Paul went, there's either a a revival or revolt that breaks out, and it was much on the revolt side. But more importantly than what history tells us about the, the place, the day, and the age, is what inspired history tells us. And you'll notice that in the Holy Scriptures here, Paul addresses it to the saints that are at Ephesus. In many contexts here, at a well-taught church, we wouldn't have to define saints or contrast false views such as in Roman Catholicism or other, other views. Now, don't take away my man card here, but... Uh, I like watching Sound of Music with my family. I like listening to records of it uh, to to date uh, what goes on down in the study cave once in a while. And I thought we'd let uh, uh, Maria teach us some bad theology. As we we think about saints and how how people uh, define this, and uh, there's a song in, in this musical, Something Good, basically sums up Catholicism's view of saints. Nothing, she sings, and I won't sing to you with this gravelly voice today, with nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's all that the false religions of the world can postulate of how people get to heaven is through good works, inherent righteousness of man. In Roman Catholic theology, a saint is a particularly holy person who is exalted to sainthood by ecclesiastical procedure. They've got to be nominated for the position, having done at least one miracle that's been verified. But in the biblical usage of that term saint... Is to be called holy, separated from the world, exalted to sainthood through Christ. In in Pauline theology and elsewhere, he views Christians as in vital union with Christ, that they are the set-apart ones by the God who saved them. Now, after that poor theology I just shared with you from Maria, I'm running quickly to Ephesians 2 to, to blot that out of your head. In, uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul's going to teach us about these saints and how they became saints. How did you become a Christian? 
Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. It's a gift. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's not a matter of the goodness of man, but the grace of God, quite apart from human merit. Either you believe in a religion of human accomplishment and what you can deliver to God to to gain his favor, which Paul is going to smash in uh, Ephesians 2.8, or you believe in, in the righteousness of another one, what has been accomplished through Christ and Christ alone. Let me ask you, beloved, has there been a time that God reached down and set you apart as a saint by the Holy Spirit, a day in which he regenerated you and drew you into the company of his church? Have you turned from your sin and abandoned your own plans for your life and placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone and what the perfect life that he lived and the death he died for sinners? We must reckon with that question as we look at who Paul wrote to. He wrote to the saints that were made so by God and God himself for his praise, his glory, that grace would abound more and more, not human merit. He wrote to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The traditional view of the letter's destination was the Ephesian church. Though this, along with virtually everything, has been attacked by modern critics. Everything's in question. Well, did, did Paul write his epistles? Did Isaiah write Isaiah? And the list goes on. Uh, many uh, propose that Ephesians was more of a circular letter. Uh, if you've got your Ryrie Study Bible with you, it refers to Ephesians as an encyclical. It's suggested that he may have left a blank space so that each church, when, when, when making a copy of the original, could insert or at least understand, oh, you're speaking to this church here. But even if it was circular, it had become associated with Ephesus, the foremost Asian church. If addressed to Ephesians, which I believe it was, it's written in such a way as to make it helpful for all churches in Asia. So it doesn't matter whether the purpose was encyclical or not. It's no big deal that you don't find, well, well what, is the, what is the purpose? What is, what is the false theologies that he's trying to set right? It's not like Colossians, which he wrote at the same time in jail, that it, where he exposes the Colossian heresy. There's not a particular focus that elicits the letter. No issue of the day. In uh, Harold Honer's magnum opus commentary, he offers that the church at Ephesus may not have been one large church, but several house churches in the city as well as the western part of Asia Minor. But as we come to the text, we acknowledge that this is the Apostle Paul 
writing under inspiration of the Spirit of God moved along so that what he penned are the very words of God for his church to the saints, those who are in Christ, of who God is and what he expects of those saints. Thirdly, how about an exhortation of the text? An exhortation of the text, which is, is more of a prayer. You'll notice how Paul identifies himself as the writer and apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, if it's not in, on your prayer list, it ought to be. Maybe I'll come back there later if we have, if we have time. This is Paul's prayer that uh, ought to become our prayer. This reflects a standard Christian greeting. Even, even non-Christian, you know, in Judaism, you, how, would you, how would you greet each other? Shalom, peace. But this is Paul's standard greeting, grace and peace. God has been gracious to believers by placing them in Christ and thus granting them peace. Peace with God and the peace of God that pervades our minds, our souls. Think about how that phrase is going to be repeated throughout the epistle, either in Christ or in Him. It occurs 164 times in Pauline writing and nine times just in verses 3 through 23 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. This is one of Paul's most important phrases in Christ. The believer is in Christ. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ. We have been chosen in Him, chapter 1, verse 4. Adopted through Christ, verse 5. Verse 6, in the Beloved, capital B. Verse 7, redeemed in Him. Verse 11, given an inheritance in Him. Verse 12, given hope in Him. Sealed in Him, verse 13. Made alive together with Christ. And when you get into chapter, chapter 2 where he says you're dead in your transgression sins, but He's made you alive in Him. He's brought us near by the blood of Christ, verse 13 of chapter 2. Growing in Christ, verse 21. He gets into chapter 3. Talks about how the, we are partaker of the, of the promise in Christ. And given access through faith in Him. So that little word in becomes a really big word for saints, does it not? To be outside of Christ, to be dead in our transgressions and sins is to be hopeless. But to be in Christ is to be lavished every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, is to have everything. And it means more than just believing on Christ, but being joined to Him through faith in one spiritual body so that what is true of Him is true of us. The Bible instructs us on this difficult concept of union. 
Uh, illustrates in so many different ways the way Paul will do it in his fifth chapter of this letter is in marriage. Man and woman united in marriage. John does this in his gospel, chapter 15. You remember that passage on the, uh, the, the union of the vine and branches? It's speaking of vital life in Christ. How about the union of head with other members of the body in one organism, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27. So again, apart from Christ, our condition is hopeless, but in Him, it is glorious. It is glorious. And though the apostle is writing to those in Ephesus who are in Christ... Now, in Ephesus is missing from some of the earlier manuscripts, but we don't, uh, uh, we don't mind that. They were saints who were in Christ. And obligated in that part of the world to infiltrate their world without becoming worldly. So like the, the saints who were in Ephesus, if you are a saint in Newtown or in Sandy Hook or in Danbury or Woodbury, if you're in Christ, you're to live for Christ. And that's what he'll be fleshing out here for us. He alone can give the grace that we pray for. He alone grants the peace. That's what we want. As we, as we pray through the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, would you make more manifest in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience. Now give me that peace that passes all understanding. Might that peace of God and peace with God characterize my life. We're not just seeking the gifts without the giver, but the grace and the peace granted by, through, and in our triune God that Paul introduces us to here. As we leave this place today, let's be savoring the point that doctrine is doxological. It is all about worship. We cannot truly worship in spirit and in truth in a vacuum. We must be informed of who God is that we might respond to who He is. We must be exposed to what He requires of worshipers and servants of the Most High God as saints in order that we might render that service. He requires to be worshipped in lives of service and adoration. We're given the truth of God for the worship of God. If I could quote the doctor one more time, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so egocentric, having forgotten God and having become so interested in ourselves. We become miserable and wretched, and spend our time in shallows and in miseries. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is designed to bring us back to God, to humble us before God, and to enable us to see our true relationship to Him. And that is the great theme of this epistle. Think about some of the things that Paul is going to flesh out for us of, of the beginning of the church. 
The beginning of being in Christ. This was part of eternity past when God set His love upon you when you were not. Ruling out any human merit. Ruling out any societal norms. That He chose you because He chose you. He loved you because He loved you. And for that, the only response it elicits is worship and adoring service. So as we move through the indicative realities to some of the imperatival responses, let me remind you and remind myself that we never reverse the order. Behavior does not determine blessing. Thus, the illustration from Maria, which we undid with Ephesians 2.8. Behavior does not merit blessing. But blessing does determine behavior. Blessing determines behavior. The gospel connection is that we cannot live chapters 4, 5, and 6 without chapters 1, 2, and 3. So there's great intentionality as to why the apostle would record things chronologically in this way to the saints that they get the order right. Positional righteousness in Christ is what empowers the obedience. It flows out of hearts of gratitude for lavish grace. Would you pray with me? Our God, we've all read Ephesians before. Many of us have read it many times, and yet it never gets old. It is ever-living and active, and you're constantly teaching us truths that need to be conformed to in our lives of holiness. We would ask you, O God, through your word and through your spirit, because we are in Christ, that you would grant grace and peace, and that we would use grace and peace, you'd use us as, as ambassadors of grace and peace, as, we, as we, we've gathered for worship and as we scatter for evangelism, might we be known as a gracious people that are scattering to see people come to know peace with God, that need to abandon their sins, repent of them, and embrace Christ as the Lord of their lives. Lord, we pray for any such that are in our midst this morning that have never come all the way to Christ, whether they're lost in, in religion or their own works. Strip away the layers of pride and self-sufficiency. Bring them all the way to the cross of the one who lived the perfect life leading up to it and died a substitute for sinners. That you made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. What an amazing transaction. Lord, would you train us even as we would engage in praying for this grace and peace that you would cause us as saints to experience it to greater levels, greater degrees as you're changing us from one level of glory to another. Work this out in our lives, this grace and peace. The fullest measure. And as we would display it, we do so for your praise and your glory. We pray in the name of of Christ, the one who is everything to us. We pray in his name. Amen.